एंड वेलकम टू द बॉटन फिनटेक पॉडकास्ट आई एम योर होस्ट तरंग गुप्ता एंड आर गेस्ट टुडे इज टॉट शुआस द सीईओ चेयरमैन एंड फाउंडर ऑफ ऑपफाइल टॉट इज आल्सो प्रिंसिपल एट शुआस कैपिटल ग्रुप अ डायनामिक फैमिली इन्वेस्टमेंट बिजनेस बेस्ड इन शिकागो एंड अ पार्टनर एट स्ट्रैंड एक्विटी अ एलए बेस्ड ग्रोथ एक्विटी फर्म इन्वेस्टिंग इन द नेक्स्ट जनरेशन ऑफ आइकॉनिक कंज्यूमर ब्रांड्स Before starting up, I Todd founded the multi-family real estate company Beach Coast Properties in California, and he holds a BS in finance from Tulane University. Join us as we discuss how the inspiration for Oppai came when Todd saw the mechanics of a pawn shop, why being capital efficient allowed them to scale without outside funding, how Oppai underwrites the loans it provides, what was Todd's thought process when putting together his founding team, and much more. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey Todd, good afternoon. Good afternoon. How's it going? I'm good. How are you doing? Doing well. Doing very well. So, where are you calling in from? I am currently uh, in Los Angeles right now, um, but Opfi uh, uh, is based in Chicago, Illinois. Yeah. In fact, I spent my summer in Chicago. It was awesome. It's a great city, especially in the, in the summertime. It really comes alive. So um, I always suggest that people have never been to to visit it during the summer months. I agree. All right, let's dive into the questions. For our listeners who may not know, could you provide an overview of your career and how you got involved in fintech? Yeah. So uh, I graduated from Tulane University in 2004 with a degree in finance. Um, I went and worked for a large. vertically integrated uh, residential developer they developed condos and apartments in the suburbs of chicago and also had a parallel operation in scottsdale um it was called optima and they're they're still around today they still they still have the business it's a family business um and uh, i was working as an analyst in the office in glencoe illinois and i think 6 months in they saw that i was like had a lot of energy <laughs> and had a lot of passion and that I was I probably wasn't being utilized right for for my skill sets and they said hey you want to go out into the uh, the field we have an apartment bu- uh, sorry a condo building in Evanston on Elgin and we need to close down the units as fast as possible so we can repay the construction loan so we need someone to walk with the purchasers of the condos do the punch list and get it closed so that we can pay down the construction loan and move on to the next project And they said you don't have to shave and you can wear jeans and uh, a collared shirt but the only drawback is i had to get up at uh, like 5:30 5 in the morning because the hours were like 7 to like 3 uh, not 9 to 5 so i jumped at it and i ended up spending um, three and a half more years and ended up going on to another project which was one of their largest projects they had ever done it was a 750 uh, unit condominium deal i ended up becoming the assistant uh, project manager of, of or construction manager of of the site um so i got promoted three times and it was a it was a lot of fun so i got to work with like large union trades i had to manage a lot of different personalities i had to uh walk with discerning buyers and make sure that they didn't give us 100 punch list items so that you know we had to we had to deal so i really a, a really great experience um learned a lot about management a lot about people and and kind of also learned a lot about development and and how the process works in real estate. After that it was it was 2008 happened, right? 2008. So, uh, you know, came back to to my to help my dad um work on some investments and sort through kind of uh a lot of the stuff that was going on. It was it was a very I don't know 
the people who are listening, um, if they were, you know, kind of in the business world at the time, but it, it was, it was a very uncertain time, very scary time and almost the, the collapse of the financial system, the government really didn't step in there. But coming out of that is when OpFi is, is, is kind of when I started to think about OpFi in about 2011. And if I'm not mistaken, your father was an entrepreneur as well. Is that something that inspired you to kind of follow on the same path? Absolutely. Um, you know, my dad was a, was a, a pioneer uh, in the call center uh, world. It's also called the you know, BPO world, where uh, large companies outsource their customer service needs uh, to, to third parties that can do it more efficiently and help them scale. Um, and so he started by buying and selling radio time and kind of almost stumbled on this by accident. So uh, a catalog had called him and said, Hey, like, are your phones occupied at night? And they used to call on small business for the radio time. So after 5 PM, there was, the phones were not occupied and the office wasn't being used. They're like, well, that's perfect because our catalog, we get most of our calls from 5 PM to like midnight. Do you think you can staff the, the phones and, and, and take calls and orders um, and customer service. And, and so that's kind of how it all started. He got the idea like, wow, companies need third parties to help, you know, service their, their products and, and services. And so, um, by the end, he, he took it public in 1995. It's called APAC customer service it was a really successful IPO. Um, but they were service, they were servicing Fortune 50 companies like, um, Verizon, Express Scripts, Medco Health Systems. Um, and then eventually we retained. Uh, a large percentage of the company and sold it in 2011 to uh, JP Morgan uh, One Equity Partners. Uh, what's interesting though is as soon as he sold it is when I started off by. So it's kind of like I it's kind of like we I had to pick up where he uh, where he left off. So um, but but no, it's 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 been a lot of fun uh, working with my dad. He's a great mentor, great businessman, great person, and uh, has helped me a lot along the way. So let's talk about Opify. What's its origin story and what services does the company offer? Yeah, I mean, you know, I went through 08, 09, 10, and I, and I saw um, that liquidity had dried up in, in the banking system, right? So I kind of had that viewpoint and also knew that, uh, you know, asset values had, had depreciated. So the, the consumer was in a precarious position kind of coming out of 08, 09. It was going to take some time. But as I, as I started to think, I was like, well, that means there's going to be a lot of opportunity. Right. There's opportunity. I was like, you know what? I have a lot of energy. I just learned a lot going through this you know, financial crisis. I've seen kind of what to do, what not to do. And I said, you know, I, I really want to do something, but I wasn't sure what it was. So I had a, a buddy I went to high school with. He called me and he said, hey, I'm now working for a chain of two pawn shops. There's these two brothers who own it and I'm managing the stores. He goes, let's have lunch and then I'll take you by the pawn shop. And I was like, wow, that's that's kind of cool. I've never been in a pawn shop before. And I would love to like see what goes on there. And he goes, our business is booming though. Cause like a lot of people to get, you know, um, extra cash to help meet their financial needs at this time when there wasn't a lot of credit being extended by banks, credit cards, and people kind of were tightening. Um, he said that things were going really well. So I, I come into the after lunch into the store and, and a woman walks in in a certified nursing assistant outfit. She had just come from the hospital where she worked. And she pawns off uh, what looked to be an engagement or a wedding ring for cash. And I was, and it had a profound effect on me. I was like, why would somebody do that? I don't understand. You know, like why, why do they need to, to pawn off something that's obviously pretty special to them um, in order to meet their financial needs? Can't they just get a credit card? Can't they go to the bank? 
And, you know, my friend said to me, you don't understand. It's like, there's, there's a portion of the population like that need these alternative financial solutions, right? For access to credit. If their credit's impacted, if they have a thin file credit score, um, they need, you know, they need options or if they're already extended a little bit, like, you know, and, and they're not able to meet their needs. So he said, listen, you know, we have this, the, the, the owners of the store have this license in Illinois called the CELAC, Consumer Online. They go, he goes, they have no uh, desire to expand this. It's really used as a customer retention mechanism for our best customers, the one to 3% of our customers that they want to retain. So they don't go down the street to the other pawn shop and, and use them. Um, and it's, it's a loan. It's a fully amortizing loan. It's installment based. And the people, you know, really pay it back and, and they really like the product. It's really popular, but they really only offer it to their you know, best customer. So like I had what I needed there and I, and, I, and I went home and I started to go down the rabbit hole and started to investigate not only like the market sizing and the opportunity, but also this, this installment license and like started to see like what the options were in the market sizing. So I, I uncovered that 15 to 18% of the U.S. population, so anywhere between 45 to 60 million people, um, really, really had lack of credit access or were underserved in, in the unsecured, you know, consumer lending world. Um, and even, you know, even even greater of an issue was most of these people actually have bank accounts with big four banks like Wells, Bank of America, um, Chase, but they don't they don't get lent to by by the bank. So the bank has this overdraft and NSF fees, which I'm sure everyone knows about. It's a $37 billion a year industry at the time. And I was like, oh my gosh. And so if you look at when someone overdrafts their bank account by $9 and they get charged 36, the APRs on that are in the thousands of percent. And so I was like, that's just, that's just not very favorable for the customer, right? And it, it could cause them to you know, be in a worse off situation. Um, by getting these these fees charged to them and these overdraft penalties. And then I started to look at like, what are some of the other options out there? And payday loans were extremely prevalent, right? People would go into stores um, and, and the experience there, not only is the product, you know, pre-computed interest, super high APRs, um, majority of the customers just roll over their balance and get charged fees. So they're never paying down principal. It also doesn't verify their ability to pay doesn't actually take into consideration the strength of their, their employment and the, the, uh, the, the product, you know, it doesn't have amortization and doesn't report to credit bureaus. And so there's really no product features. It's really all about just like making money off the customer as much as you can on the first product. I said, I said, really, I don't really, I mean, there's title loans where people put up the title for their car and potentially get their car repossessed if they don't make payments. And, um, and I said, like, it really doesn't make sense that if someone gets denied by a bank, the next available option is like so, so much, so, so inferior. And there, and there's really nothing in between, right? There's nothing in between that's like a fair, transparent and has a brand around it. Right. And, and it really promotes credit access and champions the customers. So I went back to like in, investigate the SELA license and I was like, wow, I could make, you know, one to $2,000 loans. People could pay it back over six months to a year, fully amortizing. They can pay it off any, any day with, with no prepayment penalties. And I started to think like, this is such a better product. My, I have this bet that if I start to offer something more favorable, I'll get a lot of referrals. I'll build this by word of mouth and it will really help people. And then also it won't drown them in a cycle of debt. They can, they can actually amortize and pay down this product and be successful. And it will help them. 
So, um, you know, we started to started to think, I didn't know how to lend. So the only thing I knew how to do, I took $50,000 of my own money and opened a one-room office on the north side of Chicago and started getting referrals from the pawn shop. <laughs> and so I was doing like on Excel, like I, I'm sure like, you know, where I'm at today, like from a, a legal compliance aspect, like I probably wasn't the like, but I didn't know. I just didn't know. We were so small that I don't think, you know, it, it really made, made much difference. But, um, you know, I did it that for about two to one, three years. I made the first like couple thousand loans myself um, to the customer. So I got to know every customer. I got to know what the reason they needed the funds for. I got to understand credit. Right, like, like, what are some things in this person's documents that are positive? What are more the negative things? And I really, I really formed what today is our is our customer experience, our, our award, you know, award winning and leading customer service on an NPS basis. Um, and you know, as I as I started to do this, customers started to tell me, "Hey, Todd, I, I really like you, but I've already met you, and I don't want to really drive forty five minutes in Chicago traffic to get my refinance or a new loan." You know. Um, can I, can, can I fax my documentation to you? And then can you wire the money to me, ACH? And this started becoming more and more prevalent. And I started to see like where the world was going. It was all going online. People wanted to do things on their phones. People wanted to you know, do things digitally. And the technology was there. It started to be there in 2000, like, you know, 14, 15 timeframe. So I said, okay, I said, you know, all I'm helping now is a small subset of the population. I, I, I know my addressable market's 15 to 18%. I'm only helping a fraction of this in the Chicagoland area. I said, to do this, like, we're going to have to figure out the technology and we're going to have to figure out the service delivery in a digital world to be able to expand um, geographically and, and help a large percentage, you know, of the population. So that was kind of like my, my, my focus. I said, I said, I got to find the, the right technology. I got to keep the customer delivery. I got to figure out the underwriting model and digitize a lot of this to be able to scale. And, and it definitely took, you know, probably a year and a half, two years to really get it where I thought, you know, we really have the, the, the foundations to really start to scale this business and really start to even partner with, with banks um, and, and, and start to, you know, lend nationally. And so um, you know, a lot of trial and error, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of mistakes. And I think I probably made every mistake along the way, but we went slow enough and we were very capital efficient that we never really raised outside equity. And that was, that was, uh, I, I always say this, like, if there's a market opportunity, um, you know, I felt that this was something that, you know, was going to be here for the next 20, 30 years. I wasn't going to solve credit access overnight. And so the, there was demand just, you know, making sure we didn't make any big mistakes and making sure we built the technology sensible and efficient. So, um, you know, that was, that was an exciting part of the business. A lot of growth started to happen and we started to, you know, be able to expand our footprint nationally. When you wrote your first thousands or so loan, how did you underwrite that? How did you manage the recollection? <laughs> to, to be, to be honest, it was like it, a little bit of it, like when you meet people, it's kind of like you just have it's more trust, and so by by you know when you run into someone online, but by, uh, by you know I think that meeting somebody in person, there definitely is that connection. So that definitely helps the you know the repayment rates. Um, but I really just I, I I didn't I didn't have you know data scientists. I didn't have analytics. It was it was really like okay, does this person have a, 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 are they gainfully employed? Do they have a stable income? And then does their bank account, like, are they managing their finances, right? Like in their bank account, like, like, how does it, how do they look? Are they, can they afford to pay this back? Right. I'm never going to lend to somebody uh, that, 
you know, is in a position where it could actually make their situation worse. You know, that's unethical. And I would, you know, that was not ever the mission of the business to provide products to help people through a financial situation and stabilize, right. And then hopefully rebuild. And so, um, but like that recreating that in a digitized model that can underwrite large, a large population of customers was, was actually a little more difficult than kind of, I thought we, we eventually got it though. But, um, you know, that's, that's how I really looked at it. I was just like, okay, this person, you know, and then I would ask them, like, what, what are you using the proceeds for? And that, that was my underwriting model. But I also went slow. So I'd give people less money back then. I'd pick up we do today a little bit less, but that was, that was my underwriting model <laughs> early on. Not very scalable. <laughs> so you founded Opfy, took it from zero to 100, then switched over as a CEO lady from zero to 100, then took up the role of executive chairman to focus on a family fund and then came back as a CEO recently. What was this transition like? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, yeah, I brought in a, a CEO by the name of Jared Kaplan, and we had a great a great run together, a great partnership. He did a great job helping me scale uh, the business up and, and really you know expanding on kind of some of the early learnings and figuring things out. I think um, when you go public, it, it's, it's in a, it's, you know, what, what got you there and kind of what, what the next, you know, phase or frontier is, you know, sometimes different people, different skill sets, you know, are required. Right. And I think um, coming back in um, was, was a decision I made. Number one, I had like the energy and the capacity and I felt, I felt like I really could be successful at it. So I, you know, and I was doing other things, but I felt like this is my highest and best use. I also knew, know the business extremely well. Right. And, and the funny thing is like the business, the mission had not changed. So we were much bigger. We were, we were doing a lot more volume. There's a lot more at stake. We were public, but like at the same thing, like the, the same business principles, you know, applied. And, and I also, you know, still knew a lot of the people um, at the company, you know, they were, there was people that I actually had hired. So I felt that familiarity. Um, one of the, you know, some of the challenges, like even though you're, you know, control, you're a control owner and you, and you've been involved in the business since the founding, like you have to, you have to garner people's respect and gain people's respect, right. Coming back in, right. Like instead of just kind of, Oh, you've been anointed to come back in. And um, I, I really, you know, worked really hard to build those relationships and, and, you know, augment the, the management team slightly and, and, and really build the trust of, of our team and, and, and our employees to, to make sure that um, we were going to be doing the right things and, 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 you know, practicing. I think, I think a lot of what I'm, I'm kind of a tinkerer. So like, I think like sometimes what I saw when we went public is like, it's, it's a scary time because you don't want to break anything. You want to this, but I'm, I'm always pushing continuous improvement, right? I'm always thinking like, we got to be testing. We got to be figuring new things out. We got to, it really just needed that, right? It needs someone that kind of came in and just, was kind of always pushing for continuous improvement, pushing for, for things to get better and doing more, more of the same, but also, you know, questioning, Hey, why are we continuing to do this? It's, can we do this better? And, and for our customers, what, what value is this going to drive for our customers? So um, I feel really good. You know, it was obviously anytime there's change, people get a little, you know, change. Sometimes people just don't like change, right? But change can be uh, really good too. And, and, you know, I'm really, really happy to come back and, uh, you know, I'm having a lot of fun you know, leading, leading the company again. Sort of circling back to when you said that you became, or Opfy became big enough to that you wanted to now start underwriting and approach banks. So my question is, A, what value proposition did Opfy offer to the banks? And second, when it did become the time to like digitize things and 
build underwriting algorithms. How did you approach that? Did you hire data science teams? Did you outsource it? How did you go about that? So I'll take I'll take the first one. Um, so you know, one, one thing like there are some state licenses, like like how we originally started, that each states have small dollar lending lending rules. But what I found is is there, there, there's like 35 payday lending laws. 35 states that have payday lending laws and only like a small handful of states have small dollar lending laws. And like, I didn't really understand that dynamic, but that's just kind of the way it was. Um, what I realized is to help a larger swath of the population, we needed the banks to actually lend and we would be the help them originate and service and use our technology and our brand to manage, you know, the customer relationships. And, and, and so, um, you know, I was at a conference. Um, one of the, the major conferences for our industry is called uh, Lend It. And, uh, you know, started to talk to the uh, uh, this bank out of Utah about a partnership where we would expand credit access. Right? I told them my mission. And we had we had a very, very similar uh, alignment, you know, on, on yes, there, there is a huge need here. We can provide a better product. And I see what you're doing. And I think it, it makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of, you know, opportunity. Um, and that's kind of, you know, how it came about is, is okay. Like there are banks out there that are, they only have a couple branches. They can't compete with the large, you know, bulge bracket banks, like the, the PNCs, B, B of A's, the chases, they're never going to have the branch and the infrastructure. They just need a partner to be able to expand credit access digitally, right. By using technology and, and our experience in, uh, in, in kind of what we've learned over the last, you know, five to seven years before we ended up getting, you know, into the bank partnership model. Um, but, but, you know, today we have uh, three bank partners. Um, it's, uh, you know, very successful, like-minded banks, really passionate about expanding credit access and very aligned with us. And so uh, it's, been, it's been a good way to expand our offering and, and help more people. In a time of economic uncertainty, where there's a chance of the default rates to go up, how do you go about managing risk? Yeah, it's it's a good question, um, and it, it, it we we I think you asked this earlier, but but we don't we we internally have you know our own credit modeling um, that we rely on and, and, a, and a team around it, um, and we also you know provide advice. The banks do make the loans, but but uh, we do advise them on on you know on helping them build their models and 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 making sure that we are lending to people that are going to be successful and pay us back. Like we never want to you know lend to people where they can't afford it, where their bank accounts in the negatives and we're giving them a loan, you know, stuff like that. So um, I think like it all boils down to ability to pay, right? Like somebody, somebody makes X amount of income, they're going to have X amount of expenses. So there's a lot of data and analytics that go into it. Like, like, you know, we're looking at attributes, we're looking at bureau information and, but there's also just like, at a high level, like you have to think about this. Like if, if so, if, if somebody has five expenses, like food, your car, your cell phone, your housing, like those are going to get paid before someone can pay back, uh, you know, an unsecured loan. And, and that's, that's how we to this day think about it. So when inflation happens, like right now, like uncertainty and there's inflation that hurts our customers from the standpoint of they have less discretionary income because they're spending more of it on, on the basket of, of goods that they need to just kind of run their everyday lives. And so I think like in times of uncertainty, obviously unemployment, something we're looking at employment stability. We're also looking at um, people's ability to pay. So, you know, and, and, and how inflation is impacting that. And the one, the one silver lining kind of right now is that there is wage growth. It's, it's not, it's not matching inflation, but there is some wage growth. 
and unemployment still remains, you know, relatively low. So, um, you know, we'll see how lot what's going to happen next year. I don't think anyone knows the severity of what is going to kind of come, but I think we, we were, you know, we're cautious and we kind of are, are, you know, well aware of kind of the macroeconomic, you know, conditions right now. Talking about the current uh, statistics, right? How many borrowers is offer serving at the moment, and what is the loan volume that is originated from the platform? Can you share a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, um, in the in the you know, I think we're averaging you know somewhere in the neighborhood of, of sixty million dollars um, a month of originations, which which is over fifty thousand customers. Um, to get there, we're looking at like we'll interact with about two hundred fifty thousand borrowers a, a, um, a month to get kind of that those results. Um, and so I think like we've helped, you know, in service probably in, in the millions, right. Millions of customers, um, you know, since our inception and, and, you know, well into the billions of dollars, you know, if you kind of total it all up. Um, but, uh, you know, it, 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 we've come a long way from the days of like, when I did five loans in a week, I was like, this is, uh, this was the best week of my life. You know, I can't believe we got five loans done. And like, you know, now, now, you know, it's it still still kind of boggles my mind how we've been able to scale and, and build the the you know capabilities to get to get where we are today. And when you look at the future, where do you see Opfi heading in the next five years? And do you feel that as credit has become more accessible, will that put any sort of pressure in on your customer base? Absolutely. I mean, I think what we saw in twenty twenty one was um, we we have a we have a turn up program turn up program. So when customers come to us, we screen them against a consortium of lower cost lenders, right? So we say, hey, like before we engage as one of our product features, we want to make sure you can't qualify for a lower rate first. With, with a, and so um, last year, that met, historically in the business, you know, if we get 100 apps, seven people will match with a lower cost lender. And so then we'll, we'll, we'll transfer them over to, to that and, and let them, you know, handle the customer. <clears throat> I think it's six or 7% is what the historical number is. That number last year was 15%. So what, what, what happened last year? I mean, credit was wildly available. Um, companies were trying to grow buy now, pay later. There was, um, like, you know, the upstarts, the one mains, the lending clubs. And so what that means, we had a 15% match rate last year. That means like double the amount of our, our, those are our best customers, right? So their customers that are on the margin are our best customers. And they were, they were definitely, you know, originating to some of our, our best borrowers and, 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 and taking risks, you know, that, you know, some probably were probably good risks, some probably not so much, but that's now reversed. And, and it all starts at the banks. Like, so when the banks tighten, then it forced, then the non-prime lenders like below them, they get the benefit of that, the best customers. And then it trickles down, right. To, to kind of us. And so I think that the, the, the it, it ebbs and flows and depending on kind of the market condition, right. There's a lot of like the macroeconomic factors of like, which kind of customers we're going to see. I think like for the foreseeable future though, we know that um, we are seeing some, some better quality customers because of the market situation that you pointed to. And like in some of the recessionary worries that, that I think banks have and, and some other institutions have. So, um, you know, that's, that's kind of how, how it, how it works. Uh, my next question might be a special interest for our listeners is Opfi hiring. If yes, what do you look for in potential colleagues? You know, I, the answer is uh, yes. I mean, when you're, when you're, when you have, you know, 500 people 
um, you know, just by definition, like we're, we're always kind of in the market for some, for some roles in, in different positions. Um, I think if anyone's interested, you can go to our website on our, on our corporate website. Um, we have kind of postings of our, of our jobs, um, that if anyone's interested, um, and would appreciate it. Um, I think like what we're looking for are, is are people who align to, to our mission first and foremost. I think like when you hire somebody and their, their skill set matches what the resume, what, what the job description says. I think that's good, but all else being equal, it, look, what I found is the people that are most successful in Opfi and the people who are kind of moving up, they come in with a passion or an understanding of, hey, this is a real issue. This, this is a real problem. And I want to help solve that problem. Right. So like, like if, if, if you're aligned to that and, and you really feel like, hey, like I'm doing, I'm doing something great here. We're, we're changing outcomes for, for millions of people and we're providing them a better option. We're potentially also improving their credit score. And I get to work with like in a, in a fun uh, entrepreneurial culture, like that, that, that really is, you know, kind of what resonates and what I've seen be real, real successful people who have that passion. Switching over to the FinTech ecosystem overall, I would love to get your take on what you think are some segments within FinTech industry that will drive its growth for the next five years. Yeah. I mean, um, I, th- I think, you know, they're in, in fintech, there's a lot of mismatches between demand and supply. So th- there, there's demand for things, but there's not, a, there's not a lot of supply. I, I think um, small business lending is a good example, right? So I think like right now um, with after COVID, a lot of small business lenders kind of have wound down or, or exited the market. I think, I think banks, you know, obviously service, you know, loans with like SBA and, and personal guarantees and they're slow, but they, they give you a lot of money in a favorable rate, but it takes time. But I think on a working capital side for businesses, there's a, there's a huge market opportunity there um, where I think non-alternative finance companies are going to solve it because they can move faster. They're going to use technology to underwrite businesses and get the capital to businesses um, you know, in, in, a, in a faster format. Um, I, I think there's continued growth on the consumer side. I, I think, you know, like I said, this, this, this is an addressable market where it's, it's not like it may incrementally get better, but there's still going to be a large swath of the population that um, the banks, you know, really, they're just, it's, it's not, not a focus for them and they can't service the space. So I think there's like up and down. So like once somebody gets kind of below the 650 FICO score, that's where banks kind of stop or even, even maybe even a higher, like right now they probably are at 680, right. To, to really enter, you know, start to offer unsecured products. So I think, I think there's like a large, you know, market opportunity kind of below that in consumer. And so, yeah, I think buy now, pay later, it's probably going to get regulated by now, pay later, just by looking at like the writing on the wall. I think it got, it got started getting too crazy where kind of people were using it maybe for the wrong reasons, but it'll, it'll, it'll be around like, like, you know, ways, different ways to pay, lease to own. I think there's definitely growth and especially with on, online retailers, there's, you know, people, people do tend to like the, the buy now, pay later product. Um, but it, there, there might be some regulation that, that, you know, slows it a little bit, but I think that'll be there. Um, you know, I think a, another, you know, uh, thing is you have a lot of unsecured debt on like, I think the, the consumers have like 1.3 trillion of unsecured debt right now. I think like, a tech forward humanistic kind of debt settlement or credit repair business could do well, like in the upcoming five years, you know, where you're taking a more humanistic approach to 
to, to collections and, and helping people actually like restructure their debt and actually get, come out the other side, you know, more, uh, you know, in a better position as opposed to just collecting money, right? And like, you know, really providing a service um, where, where, you know, it can, it can help customers. So, you know, these are, these are some of just the, the, the high level themes that, you know, I'm thinking about, but, uh, I, I do think, you know, the market opportunity, you know, in our core business will have, will have significant growth, um, in addition to some of those other things I mentioned. Do you think there are any, there are any segments within the FinTech ecosystem overall that you're bearish on? I, I think like, you know, the industry has moved online, right? So, so like, I, I fundamentally believe that financial services is really done on people's phones. So I think like if you have kind of a storefront business model or you're a, you know, storefront, you know, I'm sure there's some, maybe the older generations, like probably like going into a physical location. But um, I think like the the future definitely is online through apps and, and, and through, through people's iPhones and, and Samsung, you know, galaxies and stuff like that. So, I think like storefront lenders will continue to start to like see their businesses, you know, maybe decline because of the, the amount of, you know, investment in, in fintech, but also uh, people's preferences, right? People, people want the, the path of least resistance and the most efficiency. So I think you'll continue to see um, consumer finance go more digital. For a final segment, what I'd like to do is introduce you more as a person to our listeners. And I have a couple of rapid fire questions lined up for you. Great. The first one is, where did you meet your founding team or the initial employees that you hired at Upfine? So, um, you know, the first person I hired was our chief analytics officer, Chris McKay. Um, and that was, that was really foundational because Chris had come from Capital One and worked on different types of, of credit uh, in the consumer world. Um, Chris is still with us today. Um, and, and I think, you know, then I, then I think I brought on a couple, couple other more junior folks. But then, um, you know, when I really, when I hired Jared, um, that, you know, I said, listen, we got to build up this management team. And, uh, you know, it was a partnership. We, we, we really found people that were aligned to our mission, people that had, uh, some had consumer lending experience, some didn't, but, um, you know, we really, we really kind of gelled around this, this idea of we're really, we're really changing the world and building something better. Um, so, but yeah, I think the, you know, get, getting to know Chris, helping build the models and, and starting to scale the business was, was pivotal to, to, to getting this going. What are the most fun and some not so fun aspects of leading a public company? Yeah. So the, the, the best part is, is getting to work with like really talented, really smart people um, on a daily basis. Um, I, I, I love, I love the operational aspects of it. I love like the credit, um, looking at the numbers. I love, I love working, um, with, with the people. I love the fact that we get to help customers, right? I love reading all the testimonials that, that we get. We get thousands of these, you know, that you helped me, you got me through a tough spot. That really inspires me. Um, and, and it's fun. I mean, but, you know, being a public company, I would say the parts that are, that are, that are less fun are like, you know, there's this thing called Sarbanes-Oxley socks, you know, where it's with internal audit. And, and if the internal audit team's listening, not, no knock on you, you're great. But, you know, like there's a lot of processes and protections around investors for investors uh, being a public company, right? So there's a lot, a lot of cost and there's also a lot of steps and processes that we have to do to be compliant. And, uh, you know, take it very seriously. So 
uh, you know, I'd say that's the, probably a little bit of the drawback. It's, it's, it's definitely uh, more burdensome and onerous when you're public than when you're not, when you're private. There's, there's a lot more responsibility. Are there any career decisions that you made, which in hindsight seem quite risky? And what was your thought process when you were making them? That's a good question. I think like there hasn't been anything like I've made mistakes. So like there, there, there's no doubt about that. There's no mistakes. But I think like when it comes to things like, like I, I never, I never kind of go all in or put my, my eggs in one basket, if you will. Um, when I'm doing things, I'm pretty, pretty balanced. Um, I'm trying to think if there's just like one, I'm sure there's investments that I've made, but that's the, with, 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 you know, my prior life that I'm like, how did I think that was a good investment? Like that was this, but when it comes to like operating and it comes to like, you know, making decisions, I, I'm probably somewhere in the middle. I never, I never kind of think one, like where I'm doing something where it could potentially, you know, really impair the business or hurt it. So I don't, I don't think I've made any of those like critical mistakes, but on investing, I've definitely invested in some things that have not worked out. So I would say <laughs> that's probably more on the investment. And my last question for today is what advice would you give to aspiring entrepreneurs, especially those who are on the younger side about establishing credibility, especially with initial customers and investors? I mean, what I would say is like, is when you're working, it's a ton of work right? You're going to come in and you're going to work. You're not going to be making money. Like you're, you're going to, you know, it's going to be a struggle, right? To get things off the ground. Right. And you're going to, you're going to make mistakes, trial and error, and you're going to figure it out. If you're not passionate about what you're doing, like if you don't actually have like, like passion, like, like the goal for me was always to solve credit access. Like once I had that mission, I was like, all right. And it doesn't seem like work. Then. It seems like you're doing what you're destined to be doing. Right. I, I think like, you got to put it through that lens because you're going to be putting in 14 hour days. You're going to be working weekends. You're going to just be grinding it. And if you're not driven by something like a mission or something you're doing or the product or the people you're working with, there has to be more. So my advice is like, if you have a business idea, but you just are not passionate about it, like really consider not doing it because that's, what's going to drive you for the first three years, which is really to get you out of like that really startup phase. And so I think you really, um, and, and then when you're hiring people, make sure just because someone has the skills to do a job, make sure they're a culture fit, right? Because because when you hire people that are not culture fits, they actually detract from the company and the business. And so you have to really really investigate that, and that they're good people, and they're and so look at the look at their EQ, but also look at their passion for what you're doing. Make sure. So all else being equal. I hire the person that has the passion right, for this because when you're working on something you're passionate about, like it doesn't seem like a job. It seems like you're actually like just part of your life. On that note, I'll let you get back to work, Todd. But thank you so much for joining us today. All right. Thanks, Ryan. Really, really nice to meet you. And uh, I'm glad I got to come on and, uh, and talk with you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wart in Fintech podcast. If you like the show, then please show us some love on social media or consider leaving a review. It means a lot to us and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wart in Fintech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. As always, special thanks to our editor, Rafael Osteria. Signing off until next time, I'm your host, Tarang Gupta.